And now, coming to you live from the socially distanced two towers that is the modern 21st century Plague State Cood Street podcast, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on, well, the Cood Street podcast! It is, it's here, and, and we're back for the first time in, first time together in, in a couple of weeks, so we apologize Easy. for not Longer, having been yeah. as regular as we had hoped, but, um, but we are starting up again in the next couple of weeks doing some of the daily podcasts, aren't we? I think we very much will. I think we did the 103 episodes that we did, and we did the uh, fortnightly podcast we were doing, and I at least, I think, realized that I hit a kind of like, oh, and there's things to do, and I'll do other things that aren't podcasting. But then the other thing I've now found is I'm missing it. I'm missing that daily thing. It was giving me structure. It was giving me exposure to all these different people. And over the last couple of weeks, my head's been kind of getting a bit funny, like, I'm kind of ready to do it. So I've already got one episode in the in the bag, Gary, with Brooke Bolander. Uh, that will come Excellent. out soon. And I'm going to talk to Daniel Abraham, uh, half of the Hugo Award-winning James S.A. Corey. Uh, in fact, after this, uh, I'll, I'll have that, and that will come out in the, uh, when we kick off. And I'm not 100% sure whether we're going to go back to a daily regime for a while or whether we're going to see what happens. I'm kind of tempted to have a second 50 not, not, not necessarily like another hundred, but just begin to get back to it. Yeah, we, we, we can we can we can do anything at this point. I mean, we can if people weren't satisfied with a hundred and three, let's do seven thousand. No, a million episodes of the Cooch Street we'll podcast. Do a million episodes. We could do an episode with somebody if I can find somebody with a Luxembourg accent and claim that he's Hugo Gernsback. And who's going to say no? Hey, that's almost what they did at the Hugo Awards this week, Gary. Well, okay, you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, let, let's stop. We've got something to do. I know it's really important that we do this first. Last weekend, while we were off air and you know, practicing radio silence on the crude street, mm-hmm. um, the World Fancy Award nominations for 2020 were released for work in 2019. And it's right. a fine, fine batch of nominees. But it was also kind of shocking, wasn't it, Gary? I had with, with, with the crude street. Podcast is nominated under special award non-professional, which is it's great. I mean, the category itself is, is strange, but at, I was stunned. I was absolutely I was shocked. shocked. I'd never even thought of being uh, in in that world of the World Fantasy Awards. I was um, sure we'd be on a special special you know, award non-professional, non-profe- uh, not non-professional. That was what I got for the last one. I, that, this, I had plenty of jokes. I had to go back to my university. I won a, a special award non-professional Eight years ago now, uh, yeah, and yeah. everybody was excited. I was going off to uh, that would have been Saratoga Springs, uh, and coming back, you got you got to come back with a award. Now yeah, this is yeah, an yeah. academic world. They think they think I'm coming back with a Nobel Prize or, or, or a silver medallion <laughs> or something. You are Gary. Never 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 give up on that. With with a with a slug of lead in the shape of H.P. Lovecraft. That says non-professional on the face of it. Well, actually, since we're talking non-professional, right, and the judges for this year were Gwenda Bond, Galen Dara, Michael Kelly, Victor Laval, and Adam Roberts, uh, mm-hmm. several of whom we've t- spoken to on the podcast and several who I'm sure we will again, or we will get to. Uh, and yeah. in our category, to give you a sense of the variety of it, uh, Bodhisattva Chattopadhyay, Laura E. Gooden and Esko Sharanta f- were nominated for Fafnir, a Nordic journal of science fiction and fantasy research. Michael Kelly uh, for Undertow Publications and his year's best weird fiction. You and me for this shambles. Yeah. 
the indefatigable Thomas team, Lynn and Michael uh, Thomas, multiple Hugo mm-hmm. Award winners for Uncanny, and the fabulous, legendary uh, Terry Windling for Myth and More. So it's kind of like there's, there's a research thing, there's a podcast, there's a fiction magazine, which the Hugos consider a semi-prosine, mm-hmm. but you know, still, fiction magazine. And some other bits and pieces of publishing company. So it, it is a bit of a catch-all, but it, it was a beautiful had. surprise. Yeah, uh, and uh, it, it's uh, to be in the same category with Terry Windley for anything is makes you feel like you're you know not not quite legendary, but you're legendary adjacent. Um, <laughs> yes, we were legendary adjacent, Gary. Yes, that's as much as we could do. Well, we were nominated for a Hugo Award again, which. Uh, which we didn't get again, and we were very happy to see Charlie, Jane, and, and Annalene get another get Annalene get another one. Um, but <laughs> well, again, actually, let me just quickly do this because I, I think I want to. Uh, if you if you can bear with it, I'm going to just run through the winners because Cood Street is a news podcast, and nobody in the science fiction world knows that the 2020 Hugos, not a Hugos, Hugo adjacent Hugos, semi demi Hugos, and micro Hugos were mm-hmm. presented uh, on August the first. At Con Zealand, the world's most complicated, actually, g- genuinely, the world's most complicated mm-hmm. Hugo ceremony ever. So, the astounding award for best new writer went to R.F. Quang. The lodestar mm-hmm. for best adult book went young adult book went to Catfishing on Catnet from by Naomi Kritzer, a guest on the of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Fan artist was Elise Matheson, who is a mutual friend of of ours, a dear friend of Alan Clages, as whatever else. Friend of Alan Clages, no wonderful person. Fancast went went to our opinions are correct. Fanzine was the best was the book smugglers. Best semi prosine was on canny. Best professional artist was John Picazio. Best editor long form was Nava Wolf. Best editor short form was Ellen Datlow. Best best dramatic presentation short form was uh, the answer an episode of the Good Place. Best dramatic presentation long form went to uh, Good Omens. Graphic story was Nadia Korafor's LaGuardia. Best related work went to the 2019 John W. Campbell Award acceptance speech by Jeanette Ng, which I guess now would be the astounding acceptance speech, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Best series was The Expanse by James S.A. Corey. Best short story, which is a fabulous story, actually, it was As the Last I May Know by S.L. Huang. Mm-hmm. Best novelette was Emergency Skin by N.K. Jemison. Best novella was This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Possibly, in terms of reception, the novella of the year. In a genuine surprise to me, just because of how I felt the discussion around the field was going, Arcady Martin uh, won for her debut novel, A Memory Called Empire, which I actually thought was a fabulous result. So, yeah. I thought it was a wonderful result, too. It was not the one I was expecting. It seemed to be a return to. I can't see a pattern in the awards, but I never can. But it seemed to be, let's let's recognize a kind of classic science fiction. In a sense, that's kind of a classic version of a space opera. Uh, that, uh, well, uh, well, it is. I, I think what's interesting to me about it is, I mean, it, it, it is, it's not so much as a version of a classic space opera. It's a 21st century space opera. I mean, it's a very, very yeah, modern well, space yeah, opera. Right. Uh, and it has all those modern concerns and approaches. And so it's that classic sense of the genre evolving, redefining, reconsidering itself, and doing something fresh and new, 
in that classic core space. This is one of those things which the genre is all about. You know, like, sooner or later, mm. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. There are a myriad of wonderful science fiction novels, all different kinds. But it kind of feels like the core business of science fiction is always a spaceship in space. It could be as uh, the panel, which I would be on right now, had it not completely collapsed with everybody withdrawing except me, was a panel of novels that uh, should have been on the Hugo ballot that weren't. And I, I started making a list, and there were a lot of good novels that weren't on the, the list. Yeah. Um, some science fiction, some more marginal. In other words, you could have, uh, you could have extended the uh, Hugo nominee list to 15 titles this year with, probably without offending my sensibilities. <laughs> yes, and you know, in fact, one of the interesting things, and we should maybe segue or semi-segue because we're so well-structured, uh, this week weekend has seen the 78th World Science Fiction Con uh, Convention, Con Zealand, held, in, held online. It's a virtual convention. It's theoretically in Wellington. It's Wellington-based, but it's unfortunately not there, and it's been a in, it's an enormous disappointment for thousands of people that they couldn't be there. And the convention has put on done a sterling effort to get something online, and I think has established the fact that there's probably always going to be at least a virtual stream now to Worldcon of some kind. I think there yeah. will be. And uh, the question, the, the question I've been seeing debated today is whether it should simply be um, a, a, an online streaming of the convention or whether there should be active online participation, online seminars in addition to the in-person seminars. Um, Personally, I'd like to see that. I was impressed with some of the back-end technology that was involved. I mean, when you think that this is, this is the first time the Worldcon, which is not, as we, as many of us know, a body that exists consistently through time but reinvents itself every year. Uh, mm -hmm. Given this the first time Worldcon has gone online, I think the knowledge from it will help make the coming Washington, D.C. Worldcon much more um, enjoyable to attend. I mean, it's nothing like in any sense for me, attending a, a convention in person, but it does have real value. One of the more intriguing spin-offs from Worldcon this year was the Conzealand Fringe, which showed up on Facebook Live, where a group mm -hmm. of people based in Europe ran, ran a number of panels, some very good panels, actually, uh, featuring people who couldn't attend Conzealand for a variety of reasons and weren't in sync with the time zone. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of, there be of Worldcon being virtual work on being big enough to have a fringe and that that fringe should also include a lot of the stuff that maybe isn't being focused on at the, the world con in person. But, but without wanting to go into too much detail, I feel like this is maybe partly because it did go online. I think it's a game changing world con again. We've had a number of game changing world cons in the decade, none more so maybe than the London world con in 2014 mm -hmm. but this one i think is going to prove to be a game changer this is the one where generational change has shown up and knocked on the door and said we need to be fresher and different i don't think they'll you can put the same face on Worldcon for 2021 that you did in the past well you see two you, you could see two world cons going on um they shouldn't have been at odds at one another but it began to seem that way toward the end um and and one of them the, the the one world con which was the old community the old defined community i just before you and i are doing this i was just on a panel with myself talking to joe haldeman two old white guys and some of the stuff we're going to talk about is old white guy stuff 
if you, that's one convention, and that convention included the Toastmaster George Martin. It included Robert Silverberg. It included uh, some of the panel topics uh, that, that dealt with classical and historical science fiction. And then you had the convention that was represented by the nominees and winners, uh, which was essentially a completely different group uh, interested in being part of this, being at the center of it, as, as they should be. I, th I thought one of the ironies I was thinking about this in terms of the history of science fiction, not just the history of world cons, is that um, you have science fiction has been attractive to outsiders probably since the beginning. I'm guessing that the geeky boys who subscribe to Hugo Gernsback's radio ma magazines probably were not very well accepted in the social circles of their school. And if you look at memoirs and autobiographies of ancient science fiction writers like Jack Williamson or Frederick Pohl, they were all misfits who wanted to be into a, in a community. And community was the, the science fiction was the first community that let them in. Yeah. And to some extent, this even included a few women. I mean, uh, Lisa Yasek has done more research on this, but C.L. Moore was glad to be in the science fiction community. Lee Brackett was not that it was terribly welcoming to women. It was, I think, according to Lee Brackett, terrified of them, but really wanted them there. Uh, but by and large, that's the history of science fiction is welcoming outsiders. And you'd think that in 2020, it would be doing that programmatically. It's doing it in terms of the voting nominations and winners. I'm, I'm going to sort of split a hair here. The problem with some of the tone of Con Zealand, and I don't lay it solely at the feet of Con Zealand, I think that it's it, it's been there in Warcon as well. Isn't yeah. that it's failed to invite, embrace, or include outsiders or minorities? It's, in fact, that it's failed to recognize what the insiders and outsiders are. I mean, we're talking, the, the, we're talking about Hugo Award winners and nominees. We're talking about best-selling writers. We're talking about the mainstream of the field still being treated like it's the outside of the field. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's the and, odd thing. And I think that's but, the thing that has to, just has to change. And I feel like there's a feeling that a line is being drawn in the sand. And we've seen it coming. You know, it's like, uh, surely, I mean, there was, without wanting to, without wanting to get ex excessively critical of people who meant well, volunteered their time and everything else, particularly, you know, there was way too much Don, John W. Campbell at the 2020 Hugo Awards. Way too much mention of John W. Campbell. I think we have to realize that, you know, uh, Alec Navalli came along and put an enormous concrete tombstone on top of uh, John W. Campbell, and then Jeanette Ng rang a bell, and that, that was it. It's done. It's time to realize yeah. that a major historical footnote, but we don't need half an hour or an hour of John W. Campbell was the greatest editor of all time, it fit in 1975. It doesn't fit in 2020. Yeah, I'm not sure it even fit in 1975, but that gets into historical. Or Michael yeah, Moorcock would not have agreed with you in 1975, for example. But I think you're absolutely right. If you try to look at um, something I've always been vaguely attention, uh, paying attention to, is look in the outside community, the outside literary community, things like the New Yorker magazine or the New York Times or even friends that you know in the intellectual world, which science fiction writers would, whose names do they recognize? 
And I think that, yeah, in the 60s, I think they would have recognized Heinlein. They would have recognized Arthur C. Clarke because of uh, probably mostly 2001. They certainly would have recognized Ray Bradbury. If you were to go to those same people today, the names that would be familiar to them would be N.K. Jemison, Kim Stanley Robinson, Nettie Okorafor. Um, let, let, let me think for a minute. In other words, I'm saying it's a completely different set of writers who represent the core of science fiction as it's seen by the outside world. Well, I think as we see more centenaries of the first publication of major science fiction works that have been part of modern science fiction, I think we will start to have this point hammered home. I mean, uh, Skylark, which is you know from that period of the, the beginning of modern science fiction, is 100 plus years old now. Right. You know, it won't be that long. I mean, I, I would have to pin down exactly when the first Foundation story appeared, but it would be 70 years or more ago. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's like 70, you see. It probably is almost 80 years because yeah, 1940, well, the 1940 issues, yeah, the world, the, the Van Vogt things, they're 80 years old now. Certainly Heinlein's and Asimov's first stories are more than 80 years old now. Yeah. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but... If you look at it, it, science fiction is like everything else. Uh, if, if, if you look at anything from 80 years ago, the things that stand out at you now, for you now may not be the things that were enormously popular then. Yeah, and, and you can you can echo in a sense the wrong. If you if you okay, I don't believe in losing institutional memory. I don't believe in forgetting the past, but I also don't believe in you know, you know becoming mistaken and forgetting that the past is the past. You know, we're at a situation where the bright young Turks of the 1980s, the, you know, the rebellious cyberpunks, are mm -hmm. the grand old men of science fiction now. They're in right. their 70s, many of them, you know. And that tells you that, in fact, you get to the point where the grand old women and men of the 90s are beginning to get later into their careers, you know. TikTok, right? We have right. new people. I mean, how, how could you not look at the Hugo Ballot Look down a, a Hugo Ballot that has terrific work by, by Katie Martin, Charlie Anders, Alex Harrow, Cam Hurley, Shauna McGuire, Tamsin Muir, uh, Amal Matar, P. P. Jelly Clark, the, you know, River Solomon, these, Nora Jemison, these people. These are, these are people who have come along in the last 20 years. These are the 21st, I mean, some of them a little bit before, but 21st, science, 21st century science fiction. This is the beating heart of the field right now. And I think you can balance a, a awareness of the past, uh, respect for the past, with a focus on the future. I genuinely hope that the DC Worldcon and the Chicago Worldcon will will bear this in mind and put a real fresh coat of paint on it. I suspect that the next two Worldcon committees are going to be acutely aware of, of that issue. And I think the other uh, issue to be aware of is that uh, the, 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 the science fiction doesn't advance by movements. In other words, uh, you mentioned the cyberpunk revolutionaries of the 80s. Yeah, cyberpunk was the big thing in the 80s. And you go back 20 years before that, and the new wave was the big thing uh, in, 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 the, in the 60s. I don't think there's any one big thing now. We're talking about inclusiveness, but when we talk about inclusiveness, we're talking about people who combine uh, cultures, who combine fantasy yeah. and science fiction, who combine surrealism and science fiction. I mean, my... my I, one of my images of of the new science fiction writer is somebody we both admire a lot, who you've talked to on um, on the podcast, Saad Hussein. Uh, yeah. This is somebody who writes kind of like 
okay, there's kind of like a cyberpunky nanotech thing going on together with uh, uh, the god of Thursday, together with uh, Nepalese yeah. mythology, together with surrealism, together with kind of Joseph Heller comedy. Uh, it's, it's not possible to say that's a movement. And it's not possible to say that Nora Jemison is a movement or to say that uh, Tamsin Muir is a movement. What the movement in science fiction now is diversity. So when you talk about diversity, you're not really talking about anything other than the nature of the field. I think also, Nobody owns science fiction. I think that's true. I think you also have to look at the practical thing where you say, you know, when uh, Asimov, when Van Vogt, when Clark, Heinlein, when Campbell was the dominant editor of his day, uh, it was a few trees on an empty plane, right? This was a foundational period of time, and foundational figures right. for modern science fiction stand more in isolation, more alone in their time. Now you have, you know, you have a peak forest around you. You have many, you know, young saplings, great trees, whatever else, in a broad thing, and that's what you want. I don't look across any of the last ten years, or possibly twenty, and think about a particular writer or a group of writers standing out as being the def definitional thing. It's like there's, there's an urge because it used to be such a thing to talk about, you know, like the big four, the big four magazines, the big four uh -huh. writers, that kind of thing. Well, I don't think that's, first of all, I don't think it's a useful thing, but it's certainly not a thing of our moment. I mean, sure, we could talk about one or two people who are incredibly prominent right now, but they are prominent against a, a rich and diverse background, an increasingly exactly rich and diverse background. And I think also a background, and this is in sync with my own dealings with the back end of publishing, a, a scene that's thirsty to be more diverse now. Um, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, the diversity is now something that's... Uh... It's, it, it, it's one of the central values. I think you're right. I was talking, for example, to, um, to Joe about, we talked again about Starship Troopers because there was an article, interestingly mm -hmm. enough, in uh, New Yorker online about the movie Starship Troopers being such a Trump-era movie, which is a separate thing. But when the novel came out, which, as uh, Joe pointed out, was not a major novel in Heinlein's mind. It was supposed to be a juvenile. But it generated all these responses. I mean, once Starship Troopers is out there, Joe was writing uh, in response to it in Forever War. Chip Delaney wrote in response to it, Harry Harrison. For about five or six years, there was a little library of responses to Forever War. I can't imagine any single novel uh, garnering that kind of response within the community these days. No, I don't think that's what happens now as much. I think you're more likely to see thematic occurrences in the field, and they do resonate with one another, but they're not as directly responsive. So right now, there's a real pattern in space opera, in fact. Arcady mm -hmm. Martin's book is part of it. Uh, Max Gladstone's Empress of Forever is, is part of it. Elizabeth Bear's Ancestral, Ancestral Night is part, about it, part of it, which is this a modern, um, less sort of um, invasive, empirical, um, em empire-based kind of science fiction, mm. less colonial-based kind of science, space, space opera that's very much of the moment and feels interrelated without ever having been coherently brought together. And I think you're going to see more of that kind of thing. I, I, I think the other thing is, ironically, the increasing diversity of the field liberates old science fiction ideas from the kind of from rattling around in the cage that they've been in for a long yeah. time. I'll give me an example. One, one, one of the most influential 
tropes in science fiction now is the Generation Starship. And, of course, it goes back before Heinlein. Actually, there were examples in the 30s. But, you know, Heinlein's universe, you don't know that the whole universe, that your whole universe is, in fact, a giant spaceship. Um, the same plot, essentially, uh, was the same situation, not the same plot, uh, was, was used by Kim Stanley Robinson to critique the idea that we could ever escape this planet. This became an mm -hmm. ecological argument. He wasn't responding to... Uh, to Heinlein, he was using that. And when River Solomon uh, wrote An Unkindness of Ghosts, that generation starship becomes a way of exploring slavery and power and gender relationships and neurotypical relationships, all kinds of issues that were not even in the air when Heinlein was writing. It doesn't mm. mean that she's responding to that. It means that she's found a new use for an old machine. Absolutely. And I, I, I the new space opera, you mentioned Arcadia Martin. I think that people keep reinventing space operas because it's a good machine to be reinvented. It doesn't mean well, you're responding well, to it, reacting to earlier ones. I actually think with space opera, it's more than that. I think uh, space opera is so much... It, it, I mean, if there is, and people occasionally struggle against this idea, if there's a core or a center to science fiction, the thematic core, the mythological core of science fiction is space opera. That's why it's the thing that... Uh, the visual media tend to pick up initially. When you look at everything from Star Trek to Star Wars to The Expanse to whatever else, it's mm. space opera. You're putting stuff in space on screen, stuff in space on the page, right? And people respond to that. Other things, yes, but that's the really clear core one. But we're going to keep dancing around these new ideas. It's how the field re refreshes and grows. And it's important, I mean, you and I have not attempted to put down, put a list together for this, and I'm not going to ask you to now, but the Conzealand, the virtual Conzealand panel that mm -hmm. I was watching just a mo just before we started podcasting is called Best Parts of the Worst Year, Favorite Books and Meter of 2020. And uh -huh. I remember having a conversation with our dear colleague at Locus, Liza Grontromby, earlier in the year about how, you know, it was or wasn't a good year. It's a hell of a year for fiction. Yeah. I mean, it's not a good year. It's a hell of a year. And we've well, had that's other was, good years around. When I, when I was asked to, to start naming uh, books that could have been on the Hugo Bell, I, I got 10 other books easily. Uh, and maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe part of the appeal of ideas like space opera is that it's, it's something which is irreducibly science fiction. You can't really pretend it's anything other than science fiction. You, you, can, you, can, you can do that with... Uh, uh, ecological fiction, you can you can do it with psychological fiction, you can do it with cyberpunk, you can even do it with time travel. I mean, one of the novels that surprised me by not appearing on the Hugo Ballot was, was Annalie Newitz's uh, uh, novel about, which was a time travel novel, yeah. uh, granted. But it also Terrific. had the most inventive kind of time travel and uh, sort of alien geological mystery behind it. It was, it was cleverly invented from the ground up, but it was also a historical novel. Uh, and yeah. it was a very well-researched historical novel, and in the sense it invited readers to say, "Well, you can read, you can read this as a historical novel. You can focus on the science fiction stuff." In the end, the historical stuff won out. That's really what it was about. It was about uh, liberation of women from a potentially, absolutely catastrophic thing that might have happened uh, in, in in the 1890s. Uh, so, does that mean that because it's so historical, people don't think it's science fictional enough? Is there is there an issue about what's what's sufficiently science fictional? Nothing can be too much science fiction, I guess. But 
Well, it's hard to be too science fictional in a science fictional sense. I, I guess what I'm feeling about this this last while, as, as you know, Garth, yeah, Gary, these mm. have been these have been dark and difficult days in 2020, and one of the ways that I have coped with 2020 over the last few months is I rewatched The West Wing. Oh, you did? I did. Aaron Sorkin's sort of progressive political wet dream uh, TV show of the late 90s, early 40s or whatever it was. And I loved it. And throughout, there's this moment where whenever something's happening, the president will turn around and go like, what's next? I kind of feel Mm -hmm. like there's a what's next thing happening now. It's like, we did the golden age. We did cyberpunk. We did whatever else. And every the science fiction feels ready for it, like the next thing, and ne- the next thing in how we approach our celebrations, our conventions, our awards, we're seeing what's next in terms of, you know, uh, the the printed word, you know, you don't you don't get the Arcady mm. Martins and the Summit Basus and the you know Saad Husseins and the Usman Maliks and the Nora Jemisins coming along if it not if it's not a, what's next? And what's really important to remember in that. And this is what I think people who are threatened by that line of conversation don't hear, and maybe it's not said enough, is that's not washing away everything else. Greg Bear is still a significant writer, and when he has a book come out, it's worth paying mm-hmm. attention to. Kim Stanley Robinson is still one of the foremost science fiction writers of our time. It's just that it's a more complex picture than people are, are, are taking into account. If Octavia Butler had not tragically sadly died she would be i am confident one of the grand writers of our time that's i I think that's probably true and i think that uh some i i I guess what i'm thinking is that yes the next thing but it's not going to be one next thing um i don't think i i think that science fiction you, you can put this in one of two contradictory ways it's diversified to the point where it literally doesn't have a center anymore. It doesn't have any central committee saying, well, this is what the, you know, okay, this year it's going to be cyberpunk, and next year we're going to do, I don't know, mannerpunk. There's, there's no central authority to it. So you're not going to have, even as recently as, let's say, you mentioned the cyberpunks in the 80s, or you can go back and look at the very dramatic effect that the left hand of darkness and the dispossessed had um, in, the, in, in, in the 60s. I don't see any single book sort of commanding the discussion in the field like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't see it's 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 not one discussion. I think this is what confuses people. Uh, frankly, what was upsetting people during much of the uh, Hugo Award ceremony was there was a discussion going on which seemed to include to exclude them. Oh yeah, and and, and not and only exclude them, Gary, but exclude them right at the moment when they were in the middle of it. Exactly. Exclude, being excluded at the moment you're supposed to be celebrated. And that would be really annoying uh, for anybody, I think. Um, as, especially since, as I said, the, once you got to the awards and the acceptance speeches themselves, you were in a, in a different rhetorical universe. Uh, you were listening to people talking about different things entirely. I was going to say, the, I mean, overwhelmingly the acceptance speeches were great, but particularly Jeanette Ng and R.F. Quang's speeches were powerful and moving and deserve a lot of attention i think rf quang talking about her experience in the field should disturb and upset everybody 
I, I, I listened to her um, speech again, played it back today, because it was her voice was so quiet and controlled, just in terms of the delivery of the speech as a speech, apart mm. from the content, was enormously powerful. Yeah, the, 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 those were two of the speeches. The third speech, which I um, found extremely moving, not surprisingly, was Neil Gaiman's acceptance on behalf of Terry Pratchett. Of Pratchet. course, of course. Um, but it wasn't simply because his friend passed away before he could see this. It was because, as he said, uh, Pratchett never won a Hugo and, and, and thought too highly of them. In other words, what he underlined, in a way, for, 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 a, for an aging British white man, well, aging, no longer aging, for a dead British white guy, his passion of wanting to be included in the Hugos was the same passion that we saw with these young acceptors last night. You know, the Terry Pratchett was once in that position, and he was under the impression, and not the only one, that you couldn't get a Hugo if it was funny. Um, yeah. And I've heard that from many people. So, so the idea of being included, I think this is the thing that it's easy to overlook if you've been around in the field for a long time professionally. Being included in the Hugos is a huge, huge deal uh, to a young writer. George talked a little bit about remembering when he was that young writer. Um, but... I think, though, we have to acknowledge that it appears, and neither of you, neither you nor I, have experienced this firsthand. So we're talking from observation and anecdote. Yeah, the kind of reception that George Martin received, I imagine, at Hugo Award ceremonies in the seventies when he was a young and up and comer, quite different from the kind of reception that some of the young up and comers today have received when they've been excluded. They've been excluded on different bases. And George was just a young guy who hadn't got into the guy club yet. People today, quite different. And so it's ever more important. I mean, this is something which we saw backstage, and I wouldn't get into too much back, well, too much more, I guess, mm. backstage politics. We saw people who are feeling quite hurt and disrespected because they yeah. were from the wrong group, because they were... Um, you know, fan, not professional, or whatever else. And if there's an importance to the Hugos, and you can talk about awards too much, and I, I can I could argue happily about the actual importance we should place on awards. We've done it too much before, but everybody should feel recognized and awarded and honored and appreciated during that process. And unfortunately, and I think it's led to what, at least one, if not two, apologies from Con Zealand already. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what happened. They because of maybe because of the chaos that was going on with it moving from physical to a virtual convention, maybe because of all of the issues around the complexities of technology. Yeah. There were all kinds of reasons maybe it might have happened, but it you know, it shouldn't be happening. And, you know, it's one of those things that we all have to work towards making sure doesn't repeat because on one hand, I never want to see a speech like RF Quang's again. I don't want to don't want to hear hear a speech like that, not because the person has been silenced, but because there's no reason to be saying it. I think the other thing that was unnerving, um, and I guess unnerving is a mild word for for Rebecca Quang's speech, is that most of what she said in that speech is not confined to science fiction. Most of that has to do with the publishing world in general, with the literary community in general. Uh, there are plenty of people because I, I I know some of them not. Uh, necessarily in the science fiction field, who have had, certainly having your name mispronounced, getting a smaller advance, uh, getting a, a, a cover that uh, is outrageous, uh, 
that's not confined to science fiction. So we, we, we have to acknowledge that some of the problems with science fiction are endemic to publishing and probably more endemic to the culture in general. But I do think we need to make a distinction, as, as you were doing there. When you look at the acceptance speeches and listen to what they're saying, the Hugo is one thing as a kind of cultural marker, as a kind of marker of community. It's another thing as a literary award. If you go back over the last 50 years of the Hugo Awards, they're, they did okay. I mean, as yeah. Joe Walton showed in her book, they, they're, they're, they didn't pick out the worst novels every year. And often oh, they and sometimes, sometimes they got it really right. Um, you know, not sometimes uniformly, right. not as a simple thing of quality, but yeah, absolutely. They, they absolutely did get it right. But, but, but so the point is getting, getting a Hugo Award doesn't get you in the canon. You, you can get a Hugo Award and disappear the following year. The point is what happens in the community. The Hugo Award means, you know, that that that, that you've been welcomed into the community, as, as as we've said. And and the irony, of course, is that science fiction, as an outsider genre, always wanting to be invited into the grown-ups' room, uh, you'd think more than most other genres would be inviting other people into its room. And I I think that most of the people in the field try to do that. Uh, so I, Gary, I, I think there's a generation. There's a there's a generation that's doing a bad job of it, and unfortunately, it's my generation. It doesn't mine mean... too. No, no, no. I mean, okay. one of the things. I mean, we, we you and I would both like to think that anybody would be comfortable listening to the Cood Street podcast, and we don't. We we, we talk about it a lot, and some sometimes we sort of think. But you know, the truth is that first of all, white males over forty are a goodly portion of the problem with all of this. Yeah. And without getting into just beating us ourselves up, you know, which is not even productive, you know, you need to be a, try to be self-aware, do better, be a better be a better person, right? And treat other people well and try and be open-minded. I certainly have come to appreciate that there are multiple ways of appreciating a single work of art. And it's possible that, for example, a, well, let's say Arcadia Martin's book, which won the Hugo this year, which is terrific. It may be that I read that book differently than Charlie Jane Anders would read that book, than you would read that book, than Nora Jemison would read that book, whatever else. Or, in fact, that, that my, the kids who go to my daughter's acting class would, would, would read that book. However, we'd all get something out of it because it's a good, rich book. Exactly. And I think that's the kind of very terribly articulated metaphor we should build on or example we should build on. The idea that, you know, we want those kind of stories, the stories that put other faces at the center of our experience and allow us to interact with that. Um, Here's the thing that gives us, it gives you and I and, and, and others in uh, the other the other people who work at, at Locus and other professional review venues. I had a question that was asked to me last night when we were talking about this issue. I was talking about this friend with our good friend uh, Ellen Clages, and, and, and she was saying nice things about how I at least knew who these young writers were. But then she asked, if you weren't reviewing books, if you weren't getting all these new books in the mail and, and, and being sent to write to read these new short stories, would you have found out about these books? Would you have been reading the books that you're reading now? You know, would, would you be aware of uh, uh, Zen Cho's novels, for example, or uh, Aliette de Bedard? And I didn't really have an easy answer for that. It's been so long since I had to choose novels to read. Well, well, actually, I think that my answer to Ellen would have been something like this. 
For 30 years for me, and almost longer maybe for yourself, we've stood on the speaker's side of the microphone. Our jobs involves finding work and providing it to the rest of the field. Many other people do it as well, but that's the perspective that we're engaged in. So, you know, you don't have the, I don't have the experience of wandering into science fiction bookstores or bookstores and finding unknown writers. My job is to find unknown writers and then do that kind of thing. So is yours. So I don't have that perspective. I don't know. I hope that the way you find unknown writers or new writers or whatever is by just by reading. I mean, I, yeah. I, I will say, I, I go into my, I, again, I'm in Perth and Western Australia. We have, well, I guess these days we have two special science fiction bookstores in town. We yeah. have a number of independent bookstores. And what I've found is those people, the people who run those stores, the people who run Stefan's Books, the people who run uh, Crow Books, who run whatever else around town, they're very focused on, on on new writers and variety and they actually do tend to carry works in fact i do occasionally go in and go oh i wonder what that is and even then there's stuff we get blindsided by you know yeah Uh, and part of my i have to admit that had i not uh gotten a copy i'll just pick a title out of one of my favorite books last year the Ten Thousand doors of january came in the mail writer i've never heard of plot that okay it sounded pretty interesting uh, and uh, and there were a bunch of other books that I could have been reading instead of it. And, of course, I started reading it and fell in love with it immediately. Would I have known about that book if it hadn't arrived in the mail? Would I have gone to one of your bookstores and seen it on the shelf? Probably not. I, the title doesn't jump out at me terribly. Um, but uh, I, I don't honestly remember. I do remember, you're right, in terms of being when I was spent years in academia, which mm-hmm. was not at the forefront of publishing, I spent a lot of time trying to make academics, people who teach science fiction, aware that there is science fiction less than 50 years old. That's always an issue. Um, yeah. You could, uh, so in other words, I, I started my career trying to convince people, okay, uh, there are actually more writers that you can write academic essays about besides Ursula K. Le Guin, Philip K. Dick, and Stanislaw Lim. That was it for a long time. Um, and you know, eventually they discovered... Octavia Butler, who's now very popular, but but is anybody teaching um, a, a lobby? To, and people are probably teaching uh, Jemison novels now. Uh, but so what I was doing was not actually at the forefront. It was simply trying to keep uh, the academic world from falling decades behind where the literature was. Yeah, yeah. And look, we need to focus on what's coming next. It's just the nature of of of, of the field. You know, but do you want said, to know what's coming next? I really want to know what's coming next. I don't. I want to be surprised. No, no but I mean, sorry, that's, that's the mechanism by which I am surprised. I look for <laughs> what's coming. I look what's for, for what's coming next, and hopefully I'm surprised and invigorated by it. You know, that's how you find Saad Hussain and Alex Harrow. That's how, you, that's how they found Stan Robinson and Bill Gibson. That's right. how they found... Heinlein. No one was looking for Heinlein before he came along. You know, you you, you need you, know, you need to be finding the next thing. And sometimes the next thing is, is, is a, a major book by somebody. You know, sp- spin the dial forward to you know, say you know, Christmas of this year, and we're going to see new books by Caitlin Kiernan and Tam- Tamson Muir. There's uh, uh-huh. a new Charlie Jane Anders novel due out. I think maybe in Shanta to next year, not in the U- UK yeah, before Christmas. 
her her YA book, uh, Victory's Greater Than Death. You know, there's a new Justina Robson book coming along. E. Lily Yu's debut novel will be out before Christmas, and we've been waiting for that for years. Yeah. Um, there's all kinds of exciting different stuff. So these are great, it's great times, you know, um, and we really do need to be open to that and to trying to find the next thing. I mean, I have been encouraged by the sort of things that are starting to come through to me. You were talking the other day to me about the Decameron project that was done mm-hmm. by the New Yorker magazine, New York Times magazine, oh, which, Times magazine, which also echoed the slightly earlier new Decameron project done by Joe Walton et al., all of which featured wonderful fiction by a great diversity of writers. Um, and you can see it through the work that's coming out from Comma Press in the UK, from all kinds of different people. The, the only thing is that the only things that needs need to be done right now, Gary, you know, is sorry, I walked away from the microphone. I hope it's still sounding. Oh uh, no, it's fine. I'm okay. picking three semi-random books off my shelf as an example of our time, right? First, and I'm holding up. Maybe someday we will do a Facebook Live episode yeah. of the Cruise Street Podcast. We're, we're going to turn this into a video podcast at some point because we're you're, okay. you're holding up. You're holding up. Okay, I was going to mention this. Okay, I, this is this is this is Mike Harrison, right? Yeah, the sunken lands begin to rise again by M. John Harrison, which is one of the great novels of the second half of 2020, right? But it at is. At the same but time, it, also I've been reading Elizabeth Knox's the, Eliz- the Absolute Book, which is one of the best fantasies of last year from New Zealand. I'm about to read M- More Due by Alex Phoebe. Hmm. Which is a fantasy com- which is coming coming out from ba- uh, <laughs> Galley Beggar Press, who are the people who wrote who published Duxbury Newport last year, the one that was up for the oh, Booker really? and all that okay. kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So here, all here, kinds here's of plea cool I have because I and one of the novels I had for I think October uh, is the new Jonathan Lethem novel, mm-hmm. um, which is. Pretty clearly science fiction. I'm blanking on the title of it right now. Uh, I could walk over there and get it, but yeah. I'm not going to. But, and, um, and the C.L. Poke has a new book coming out. Look, this is the thing, though, right? It's like we have this embarrassment of riches, and when you look at the, the nature of the riches we have, I mean, okay, Locus publishes forthcoming books issues, and if you don't mm-hmm. subscribe to Locus, please consider going to locusmag.com. Maybe look at the website. Maybe consider buying a single issue and trying it out. For February of next year, the highlighted novels are by Gregory Bear, Greg Bear, Sarah Gailey, Elizabeth, well, R.A. Lafferty, in fact, no, C.L. Polk, Scott Westerfeld, Isabel Yap, right? Uh-huh. And you're going like, well, that doesn't strike me as being an on-diverse group. You know, the following month, you know, you know new books by Stephen Erickson, Peter Hamilton, Arcady Martin. K.J. Parker, Jennifer, Jennifer Robertson, Cat Rambo, and I'm going to really murder this, Naaman Gobert Tillahun. Uh, so, you know, there are all kinds of people writing and working. It's really exciting. And our podcast, I mean, if our podcast is going to have any future, the Coot Street podcast at 10 minutes length and full length, we need and want to be embracing it to keep it even interesting to do. The 100 episodes we did was a breath of fresh air for, for I think, both of us, and it's why we'll keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I think that we want to keep turning over and recognizing that. But the challenge also goes out to to the Salt Lake City World Fantasy Convention, which is going to be virtual, right? Right. And virtual conventions have no excuse not to be fully inclusive of the community since everybody can attend one way or the other. And I actually think that uh, one thing you saw working itself out a little clunkily at Con Zealand, but there is the ability to turn and say as well, we will have people who are presenters and panelists mm. who maybe aren't paying members, but they're the, you know, we can bring them in and use them to present the best possible panels exactly. or whatever else. And I think that's a super valuable thing. But there's this pressure now. You know, we expect that, con- that you know, sort of world fantasy is on kind of a little bit of notice to go, you know, like, you're going to have to do better with your virtual than Con Zealand did. And they did really well. And they've got much more resources than world fantasy. In fact, well, it's something to bear in mind. From what I heard, the nebulas were much more smoothly run, but that's a much smaller. I don't believe. Dimension. I don't doubt it. I mean, they were run by uh, what uh, blah, 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 Mary Cowell and her team, and she right. is a very, very effective. Before, before, before we go, though, I want to put in you since you mentioned the uh, M. John Harrison novel and the Lily Yu novel, uh, a, a, a plea for another kind of inclusiveness among science fiction and fantasy readers. Because mm-hmm. I've talked to Lily about this. I've, I've talked to, uh, actually, I talked to Mike Harrison about it, too. Both of those novels are borderline in the sense that they're not clearly within genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lily's novel is about an Afghan family, an Afghan family of refugees trying to make their way uh, and to, to settle in Australia. Uh, and there apparently are some fantastic elements in it. People can read uh, the M. John Harrison novel as they can some earlier novels and wonder at the end of it, was that was there any science fiction in that? And the answer is yes, but it's not foregrounded. In other words, one of the things that science fiction is beginning to do is to include uh, science fiction writers are beginning to write things that aren't in one of these central themes of the genre, that may use only a little bit of the genre here and there. And they can be terrific novels. And I think one of the things we as a reading community and a critical community have community have to do is give our writers permission to try something that isn't straight down the center of the bowling alley yeah yeah i think that's true i think that's true and hopefully people will i mean we sit here and we talk in our little little echo chamber in a disorganized and shambolic way about these kind of things but but i feel like we're in a very different place from where we started you know if you go back to march of 2010 i mean it's a different world it, it couldn't feel yeah. less like the same world in many ways. But it's a different field, you know. It doesn't feel the same to be part of science fiction in 2010 uh, as it, or in 2020 as it did in 2010. There are different people commenting, different people involved, uh, and that's yeah. hugely exciting and encouraging. And it's just a ma- the matter of getting everybody on the same page. We'll get there. Well, we'll get there, and there's more than one page anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, yes, but you know what I mean, Gary Wolf. Don't be difficult. I know. I'm just being. I'm, I'm just being problematical. We're not even going to make jokes about that, Gary. That's problematic to do that. I guess so. Well, the thing is, it's by and large, despite what certain events look like at certain times on the calendar, an enormously exciting field right now. It's enormously I mean, what's exciting. Happening, yeah. What's happening on the ground is uh, more. It, there are more interesting, different things happening on the ground of science fiction and fantasy than any time since I can remember. Uh, I don't like. They're not all in my bailiwick. That's not. That's not my problem. They, they, there's always been a chunk of 
science fiction that's outside my area of interest. Uh, and for that matter, there's a whole chunk of science fiction that uh, that misses the whole community of the Hugo Awards. When you look at, I just started finally after years reading Publishers Weekly, and I look at their new science fiction titles. It's amazing how many titles there are by New York Times best-selling authors that I've never heard of, and I've never discussed <laughs> in the science fiction world. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm intimately aware of the fact that <laughs> we, well, you and I exist in locus space to some degree. Sure, we we read in that space in uh, through natural interest or whatever else, and there's work that has a lot of bandwidth out there that has a lot of merit that we doesn't always resonate for us. And I'm sure it's, it frustrates those people. They're not necessarily reflected always in locus, and maybe there should be more. But locus is a, a finite thing. You know, it's a however many pages of magazine that it is, Every month, you know, there's 18 or 20,000 words of book reviews, and but that's I, just I, that's going to be. I recognize when somebody moves, when, when somebody moves into that meta space, that sort of space that surrounds the, the, the local space you're talking about. I recognize, let's say, Harry Turtledove. Clearly, I remember Harry Turtledove starting off as a science fiction writer, actually, a good science fiction writer. I think he's still a good science fiction writer, but he's moved into this meta space. Now he's a national park. He's not, he's not even a science fiction writer. There's a whole genre that he kind of owns. More yeah. power to him. It's fine. And I don't read all the people that are writing. It's a version of alternate history. Uh, my point is that's out there. Locus is a confined space, but I think what we see as the Hugo Awards, even with the newer, younger writers, is still a somewhat confined space. There are all kinds of things going on in the margins of science fiction, which even the most woke of us are barely aware of. Hmm... I think that's probably true. I'm looking at the Locust bestsellers for this month because the August issue of Locust just came out, right? And I was thinking in terms of what you're saying about New York Times bestsellers, there's three of the hardcover bestsellers for this month that are written by people I've I've never read. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. And that's a challenge for me. I I probably, in fact, should make a point of pulling them out and reading them if I'm going to, or at least reading some of them, uh, if I'm going to pretend to be part of, of of the discussion in our field and i'm encouraged by some of the stuff i mean this has turned out to be a fabulous year for sylvia morena garcia which has been absolutely gratifying yeah. to watch her Me- mexican and, gothic and, has been a r- runaway hit which is awesome. but not only that but mexican gothic is moving more or less into a main it's an adjacent genre and with a lot of mainstream attention so absolutely that's that's what i mean about people who liked her earlier work uh shouldn't hesitate to look at mexican gothic uh it's, it's the same author stretching her wings a bit. Um, anyway, we're getting towards the, the end of our hour to our, our, you know, with our, our standardized waffle. We've talked about awards too much. We've talked about inclusiveness, which seems to be the thing that, understandably, I think we talk about, and have queried some of the bits and pieces that are happening in our field and hope to be you know, on, on the better side of that, that upswing in the next while. But... You know, it, it, it remains interesting to do this, Gary. It was interesting to see, see Conzealand run. It was gratifying to see the results. Uh, and if we didn't expressly say so, goodness, it occurs to me that maybe we didn't expressly say so. Congratulations to every winner this year. Congratulations to the nominees as well, but congratulations mm-hmm. to the winners. And for all of the challenges that still remain, thanks to the people who persevered and ran the virtual Conzealand. I think the community, for all that it has issues with what happened, nonetheless owes them a vote of thanks for putting the effort in as volunteers. 
I absolutely think and I agree. And, and, and you and I were both in this background room listening to the text talk to each other and, and realizing how much work they were doing. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so things are not going to go well. As, as, as Kim Stanley Robinson taught us, if you are the first ones to put up a generation starship, things are going to go wrong. And what Con New Zealand felt like to me or Con Zealand felt like was, okay, this is a first attempt at a generation ship, and there are some glitches. Uh, but the glitches are going to teach the next generation, which probably will be, as you mentioned, the world fantasy uh, in, in, in Salt Lake City. Um, eventually, we'll be getting really good at doing virtual world cons and virtual world fantasies and other things, and hybrids, partly virtual, partly... I hope I think you're right. I hope you're right. But I still really just want to go sit in, in a convention bar and say hi to people. Well, one of the things that I pointed out when I was in some panel last night is I do too. Uh, and one of the reasons I dodge into a party was to s hang out with somebody. And then I realized that when you're at home with my, you know, $11 Pinot Noir, the drinks are so much cheaper when you're <laughs> Uh, the cheapest Worldcon bar in history is at your house. Absolutely, exactly. <laughs> well, look, uh, it's interesting. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll have my guess is in about a week you'll start to see a flow of ten minute episodes. I'd like to get a week or so's worth built up before we kick those out again into the world. Starting with Brooke Bolander and Daniel Abraham, and we'll see from there. I'll be talking to Arcadia Martin next week. Excellent. So, uh, and also maybe we'll uh, talk with her. At, at length for one of these longer episodes we keep talking about setting up and looking. But until right. then, I think we're kind until of done then, for the week. This has been the Cood Street Podcast. Yes, indeed.